Well, good morning, Crossridge. Welcome to our live stream. If you are new with us, if you found your way here, my name is Lee. I'm one of the pastors here at Crossridge. So glad for you to be joining us this morning. Uh, this Sunday, this Sunday in between Christmas and New Year's is normally uh, kind of a special Sunday for us as a church. Normally on this Sunday every year, we enjoy a pizza lunch together. We go bowling together. And so there's a, a sense of loss in that and in not being able to do that this year. Although I think Andy is happy because it means he doesn't have to lose to me at bowling uh, again, once again this year. Uh, but, but we are going to turn our attention now to God's Word uh, together. And if you have a Bible with you, I do want to invite you to open it to Psalm 121. Uh, throughout the month of December, as a church, we spent our time exploring the themes of Advent, hope, peace, love, and joy. And as part of our encouragement to participate in Advent and prepare our hearts for that, uh, every Friday during uh, December, I was posting short videos uh, on one of the Psalms related to one of those themes, hope, peace, love, and joy. And so uh, a number of you uh, saw those already. So my apologies to those of you who already tuned in and, and watched those. But I enjoyed my study of those psalms so much that I decided to turn a couple of those into those five-minute devotionals into sort of full-length messages. And I found my heart, my own heart, just ministered to by those psalms. And I found over the years that the best sermons that I preach are the sermons that I first preached to myself. And this is one of those today. So today we're going to look at Psalm 121. I do encourage you to follow along with us. Now, since we already explored the theme of hope as part of our Advent series, I'm simply calling this Hope Redux or Hope Revived or Revisited. So you may have overspent in December, you may have overeaten over the holidays, but I am pretty sure you did not get overfilled with hope. None of you are saying, please, just don't give me any more hope. I just can't handle it. I've got so much already. And so today what I want to do is to overstuff you with hope. And I want to do that by looking at this Psalm, one, Psalm 121. Reads like this. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Well, this is a hope-filled psalm. We're going to consider it under two headings or two words. And those two words are direction and protection. So let's start with direction. This is what we see in verses 1 and 2. And these first two verses of this psalm function or serve as a bit of a catechism. Verse 1 asks the question, where does my help come from? And then verse 2 gives us the answer. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And honestly, I think that if we were well catechized in that simple truth, 
we would be well served. But let's drill down a little bit deeper and get to the heart of what the psalmist is saying. Now, if you look at the heading of your psalm, you will see that it refers to this as a psalm of ascents. Psalms 120 to 134 are all identified as psalms of ascent or a psalm of going up. And there's some debate about what that refers to. Some scholars think that these psalms or these songs were sung by the Levites as they went up the steps to the temple before they ministered to the people. Most scholars think that the Psalms of Ascent were the songs the Israelites would sing as they would make their way up to the temple in Jerusalem. Now, the Israelites would make three pilgrimages every year to Jerusalem and to the temple to worship the Lord there. And these were the songs they would sing along the way. They're kind of like the road trip psalms or songs. Now, I don't know how it happened, But we kind of do that whenever we take a a long road trip as a family. Now, our song is not quite as lyrically rich as Psalm 121. But for whatever reason, we usually belt out See You Again by Wiz Khalifa. Now, probably more information than you need. But that's just sort of a tradition we do as we set out on our journey. And I think that second view is correct, that these psalms of ascent were the songs they would sing or recite as they made their way to Jerusalem. And you actually get a sense of that as you listen to the words of this psalm. You can almost picture a pilgrim traveling along the road or the path up to Jerusalem and uttering or reciting the words of verse 1. I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come? Now, it's not entirely clear what he means by that. The temple was in Jerusalem and Jerusalem is an elevated city. It's set on a plateau in the Judean mountains. So if you were making your way to Jerusalem, if you were making a pilgrimage there from whatever direction, you couldn't help but lift your eyes up to the hills or to the hill as you went. So that expression, I lift up my eyes to the hills, could be spoken with a sense of anticipation. I'm looking towards Jerusalem because when I get there, I will worship the Lord who's the source of my help. Could also be that that expression is said in such a way as to calm a pilgrim's fears. As you traveled that rugged terrain on your way to Jerusalem, you didn't know what what awaited you on the other side of the hills. Israel was seldom at peace with her neighbors and the fears that might produce could be settled with the assurance or the reminder that the Lord is near. He's our help. I lift my eyes up to the hills. And even though those hills might be places of terror, I know God is close at hand. It could also be that that expression is something of a contrast. All of Israel's neighbors worshipped on what are referred to as the high places. This is where they would set their altars up on the, the highest points. For them, the proximity to the gods was important. And so they worshipped on the hills or on the high places. And so the psalmist could be making a contrast. My help doesn't come from the hills where the pagans have set up their altars. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Now, whichever way we take it, the point of emphasis is the same. Our help, our hope is found in God alone. And there's a lot communicated in that short statement of verse two. My help comes from the Lord. 
the maker of heaven and earth. And what we ought to see is that to have a relationship with God is to have a relationship with the one who is both personal and cosmic. It is God's covenant or personal name that is used here, Yahweh, the Lord. And the Lord is described or referred to as my help. So the Lord is not just sort of some disinterested deity. He's not like the clockmaker who just sort of wound things up, got them going, and then is just sort of sitting back and watching. Our God is personal. He is our help. He's my help. He's your help. And I think we sometimes forget this. I know I do. In our efforts to remember the holiness of God and steer away from the kind of Jesus is my boyfriend sentiment of 90s worship choruses, we forget that Jesus was known as a friend of sinners and that he in fact calls us his friends. John 15, he said, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. I like the way one writer put it when he said, the gospel calls us to trust Jesus as our savior, submit to him as our king, value him as our treasure. It also calls us to enjoy him as our friend. The Lord is my help. He's your help. But why is God able to be our help? Well, it's because he is the maker of heaven and earth. Now, I have lots of friends. I have friends I could call if I needed help moving or if I needed emotional support or if I somehow got into financial trouble. I know that I have friends that I could call who would be willing to help me. Friends are a great gift. But the capacity of my friends to help me is limited. They have a limited supply of time. They have limited resources. But our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He knows no limitations. He's not limited in any way. It's a great picture of the way Jesus is both our personal and our cosmic help in an event from Jesus' life and ministry. The story is recorded for us in Matthew chapter 8, and it says this, Then he, that's Jesus, got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. He replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? And he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. They were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. See, Jesus is both our help and the one who made heaven and earth, or the one through whom heaven and earth were made. Therefore, he's the one we ought to look to, not as a last resort, but as a first course of action. The Lord is my help, the maker of heaven and earth. And this reminder about direction, I think, is a good word for us today. Because we have to ask ourselves the question of verse 1. From where does our help come? 
Now, if we were doing this as a catechism, and let's say you were all sitting here today, and I asked the question, I think most of us, most of you would get it right. You would know to say, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. But is that the way we answer the question with our lives? We're all, we're living at a time when people are looking and searching for hope. Right now, we're all hoping that all of the COVID stuff will go away, soon be over. People are hoping that a vaccine will set things right and set things on a path back to normal. We're hoping that the economy can rebound. And I hope for those things along with you. But those things cannot give us hope in any kind of ultimate sense. Now, put aside all the political stuff for a minute. Let's say that tomorrow... The vaccine was distributed to everyone or to everyone that wants it. Everyone gets their shot in the arm. We all take our masks off and start acting like normal people again. Let's say that it worked like that. It would be a kind of hope fulfilled. Anyone who was afraid of getting sick and dying from COVID, anyone who was afraid of losing a loved one from COVID could put all of those fears to rest, right? But in reality, that hope, that hope would be short-lived. In fact, that hope will be short-lived. See, crises have a way of revealing things. And what the COVID crisis has revealed is that our society is afraid of sickness and death. A vaccine against COVID will not cure that. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't work hard to find cures for disease and sickness or celebrate those things when they come, but that those things cannot give us hope in any kind of ultimate sense. You know, one of the best books I read this year was a short book entitled Remember Death. It was written by Matthew McCulloch, and that book encourages us to confront the reality of death head on. The book was written in, in 2018, so it wasn't a reaction to COVID or anything. One of the stats that stood out to me from the book is that in the United States, Medicare devotes more than 25% of its spending to the 5% of patients in their final year of life. And most of that money goes for care in their last couple of months. Now, he doesn't say that to suggest that we shouldn't spend the money, but to reveal just how fearful we are of the end. We don't want it to come. And two quotes stood out to me in particular. First one, he said, death is not a disease to be eliminated. It is the inevitable end of every human life. People don't die because medicine failed them. They die because they're human. Look, this is the fate of every one of us. Elsewhere, he said, here modern medicine is to death what a comb over is to a balding scalp. We may shield reality for a time, but at some point, the comb over is no more than a monument to the power of baldness. The harder we try, the more obvious our weakness and the more obvious death's power. I love that picture. I mean, that's the best we can do is sort of try to cover it with a comb over. Now, I know you're feeling really encouraged by all of this. What a great way to go into the new year, right? But this is reality. The reality is that just under 300,000 people died in Canada in 2019. 
just over 300,000 people have died in Canada in 2020. You actually have a greater than 99.6% chance of not dying from COVID. But there is a 100% chance that you will die. At some point of something. And faced with those odds. Where should your hope be? Now I hope you hear this the right way. I'm not trying to be dismissive of COVID. Or neglectful in praising the accomplishments of modern medicine. I'm just wanting to remind you. That you could be vaccinated against all diseases. And they could discover a cure for cancer. And you could get plowed into a semi-truck tomorrow night. Where do you find hope that prepares you for even that? Now, I mentioned the way verses 1 and 2 function as a sort of catechism earlier. The historic catechisms offer us a wealth of wisdom when it comes to how we ought to think as Christians. And I think we've ignored them to our peril. I love question 1 from the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and death? And here's the answer. That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready to live for him. See, that is a solid hope. It comforts us in life. It comforts us even in the face of death. It speaks a word of assurance to our soul that our sin has been dealt with. It reminds us of God's sovereign rule over all the events, all that happens in the world. And of his tender care for his children. So where are you looking for hope right now? Where is your hope? I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. That's the question of direction. Second word to think about as we reflect on this psalm is the word protection. And you can see that this is the key theme of the psalm just by noting the fact that the word keep and its derivatives appear six times in the final six verses of the psalm. The Lord is our keeper. He is our protector. He is our shield. And as verses 3 to 8 reflect on God's protection over us, they move in an ever-expanding circle that just gets bigger. Verse 3 starts with, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. If the songs of ascent were the songs you would sing as you made your pilgrimage to Jerusalem, you can understand the comfort that that would bring. You're not going to fall off a cliff. God's watching The psalm then goes on to describe how the Lord keeps us in detail. We learn that the the Lord protects us in our weakness. Verses 5 and 6 tell us that the Lord is our shade or the shade at our right hand. And that the sun shall not strike us by day nor the moon by night. 
So we'll be protected. Verse 7 says that we'll be protected from all evil. And verse 8 tells that he will keep us for all time, from this time forth and forevermore. There's a wealth of assurance that comes from knowing that the Lord is our keeper, our protector. And I want to draw your attention to three truths related to the protection that we find described in the closing verses of this psalm. The first thing to note is that there is a difference between trusting God and testing God. So when the psalmist says what he says about the Lord being our protector and keeper, he's not encouraging recklessness. Now, you can understand why a person might be tempted to think that way. I mean, if God is our protector, our keeper, if you won't let our foot be moved, then why do we need to be cautious about anything? And certainly this psalm and lots of other psalms speak of God's protection in assuring ways to us. One stanza of Psalm 91 says, If you say the Lord is my refuge and you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Again, if that is the case, why not just throw all caution to the wind? So I have an older brother. He's two years older than I am. And when I was in elementary school, he was quite a bit bigger than me, quite a bit stronger than me. And when I was in elementary school, I used to often mouth off to older kids. I'd often get myself in trouble, but I had a big brother. And he was a protector to me, but I remember him saying to me one time, look, I don't mind protecting you if people are picking on you, but you got to stop picking fights for no reason. See, that's recklessness. That's tempting fate. Now I read you an excerpt from Psalm 91. There's a a line in that Psalm that's similar to verse three in this Psalm. Verse three in this one says, he won't let your foot be moved. But you might remember that when the devil tempted Jesus in the wilderness, he actually quoted from Psalm 91. Here's how that account reads in Matthew 4. It says, Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. See, Satan wants Jesus to opt for the sort of reckless application of God's promise of protection. But Jesus refuted that interpretation. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. See, there's a difference between trusting God and testing God. But the application of this is not just about what you do on the road to Jerusalem. There's a way to live that seeks to sort of test the protection of God. Push the boundaries. In the book of Romans, after extolling the virtues of God's grace, Paul then asks this question, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? Again, you can understand how someone might think that. Look, if our If our sin manifests the grace of God, if his grace abounds when there is more sin, then why not just live with more sin and see all the grace abound? But here was Paul's answer to that. By no means. 
we are those who have died to sin. How can we live it in any longer? See, there's a difference between trusting God for your salvation and testing his grace to see how far you can go. So the Lord is our keeper. That will inspire us to trust God, not to test him. Second truth related to God's protection is that God's hold on us is greater than our hold on him. So what exactly does that mean? Well, this is actually the simplest observation that we can make when we note the emphasis in this psalm of of God as our keeper. He's the one who keeps us. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't have any responsibility to hold on to God or hold on to our faith. We are instructed to persevere in our faith. In the book of Jude, we're even told to keep ourselves in the love of God. Here's what Jude says. He says, but you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Now we could read those verses and and think, well, aha, it all depends on me. I have to keep myself in the love of God. I have to build myself up. I have to keep myself secure. We could think that, but we would be wrong. Just three verses later in Jude, in in a a doxology that most of us are familiar with, Jude is going to go on to say this, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. Who is it that ultimately keeps us from stumbling? Who is it that will present us in God's presence without fault? Well, the answer is Jesus. Now, you know that because the answer to every question asked in church is Jesus, but it's true. He's the one who keeps us. One of the pillars of Calvinism is what is referred to as the perseverance of the saints. That is to say that those who are genuinely saved will persevere till the end. They might stumble and fall down, but they will persevere. I actually prefer the term the preservation of the saints because it is ultimately God who does the keeping. The reason we're able to persevere is because God keeps us. If if maintaining salvation were up to me and my performance, I would have lost it a long time ago. God is our keeper and his grip on us is a lot stronger than our grip on him. Third truth related to God's protection is that we have hope in the present and for the future. So this psalm is not promising us immunity from life's problems, but security in the midst of them. The comfort we have is in God's continual presence with us. Now, Even as the psalmist says here that the Lord is your shade on your right hand, And the sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. He's not saying we don't experience the sun or don't experience the the, the moon. What he's saying is that we're not overwhelmed by those things. The Lord keeps us. He protects us in the midst of what we experience because he's with us. He's at our right hand. The comfort we have is in God's continual presence with us. Again, we're not promised immunity. We're promised security. 
story of Joseph from the book of Genesis is a fascinating story for many reasons. Part of what makes the the story so compelling is the, the variations in Joseph's life. He was the favored son of his father, which enraged his brothers. So they sold him into slavery. He then rose to a position of prominence in his master's house, but then was falsely accused of rape by his master's wife. He was thrown into prison. And then after interpreting Pharaoh's menacing dreams, he rose to an even greater position of prominence in Egypt. His life was filled with lots of ups and downs, but there was one constant. Here's what was said of Joseph after he was sold into slavery. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man and he was in the house of his his Egyptian master. Here's what was said of him after he was thrown into prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and he showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. See, the thing that marked Joseph's life, whether he was in prison or in the palace, was the presence of God with him. This is actually our comfort. David says it this way in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This is what I mean by saying that we have hope in the present, not that we have immunity, but that we have security. Eugene Peterson in his Reflection on the Psalms of Ascent said this. He said, the Christian life is going to God. In going to God, Christians travel the same ground everyone else walks on. Breathe the same air, drink the same water, shop in the same stores, read the same newspapers. Our citizens under the same governments pay the same prices for groceries and gasoline, fear the same dangers, are subject to the same pressures, get the same distresses, are buried in the same ground. And then he said, the difference is that each step we take, each breath we take, we know we are preserved by God. We know we are accompanied by God. We know we are ruled by God. And therefore, no matter what doubts we endure or what accidents we experience, the Lord will preserve us from evil. He will keep our life. This is what the psalmist is telling us. But it's not just God's continual presence with us that ought to fill us with hope. Listen again to to verse 8, the way the psalm ends. It says, the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. See, this speaks to the hope we have for the future. Paul's second letter to Timothy was the last Letter he wrote. He was in prison. He was actually awaiting a possible execution. Now, I I can't say for sure that Paul had done his morning devotions in Psalm 121, but when I read the end of 2 Timothy, I know he meditated on this. Here's what he said in the face of the uncertainty that was facing him He said, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. And then he says this, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed 
and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. See, this is our hope. We have hope in the present because the Lord is with us. And we have hope for the future because we will be with the Lord. So I hope that encourages you as we head into a new year. We don't know what this next year holds. But we know the one who holds the future. So let's pray together. And Father, we want to thank you for your grace in our lives. We thank you for your hope that you give us. We thank you for the fact that you are are our keeper. You are our protector. And God, even as we make our journey, not from here to Jerusalem, but throughout life, may we trust in your protection. May we learn to just to, to look in your direction for our help and for our hope. God, I pray you would fill us with hope. I pray we would experience the hope that comes from knowing you. We would have comfort in life or even in the face of death. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.